Yeah, so how have you been? Oh my gosh, still not feeling 100%. And I was just wiped out this week. Um, so yeah, not the best week, but you know, getting better, getting better. I think I got dad sick, which makes me miserable with guilt, but uh, you know, that's life. Um, happy late birthday. And I'm so glad we're all vaccinated. Yeah, we're all vaccinated now. Good, good, good. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Um, hello, I'm Jason. I am Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award um, coming of age story, I guess. Yeah, coming of age story uh, amidst the uh, snow covered uh, terrain of Concord, Massachusetts. <laughs> we are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this is episode number 041, Little Women. Starring a certain uh, Catherine Hepburn. Yep. Uh, I have been looking forward to seeing this one for a while. I heard about it for years, but never seen it. And uh, I have to say, I personally think it lives up to the hype. Yeah, I think it, it, uh, it's good. It's a good one. Uh, <laughs> as, as you can probably say for, I don't know if I've ever seen a Catherine Hepburn movie where I was just like, oh, this is awful. Um, she tends to uh, perform very well and also just have a good knack for choosing what she performs in. Yeah, I do have to say I have recently watched for the first time Sylvia Scarlet, which was the movie that started off her reputation as box office poison. And if you had only seen Sylvia Scarlet and only seen Catherine Hepburn in that, you would have thought she was like the world's worst actress because she was. Terrible. Oh, really? Really? Oh, now I'll so, have to see that. Yeah, so I have to say it was very nice to see Little Women because it reminds you exactly why she was a star. She was so refreshing and different from the sort of women who were portrayed in movies then. And uh, it's just such an exciting, she's such an exciting presence. Yeah, she is great. So uh, before we get too much further in, we'll talk about what we do on this podcast in case you guys are new. Uh, what we do is that we review the plot of the movie and uh, add in our little two cents and opinions as we go along. And at the end of our review, we uh, rate the movie based off of different categories, including acting, the writing, the cinematography, and overall how those three things work together. And after that score, we give them a chance for some bonus points based off of things like costumes and set. Uh, the movie's boldness, its legacy, its longevity, how well it stands up over time and uh, any kind of like technical achievements that it had. Uh, so that's pretty much what we do around here, around these parts. Um, really excited about this one. Uh, have you <laughs> have you read the book? Oh, yes. Yes. OK, and so that. I'm going to depend on you for backing up some conversations that uh, I had with Cassandra because I haven't. I feel like I've absorbed a lot of it through osmosis, but I have never actually sat down and read Little Women. It's a really good, fun read. Like, it's very, very long because, you know, it was one of those books back then that came out in serials. So those tended to be pretty, pretty epic. Mm -hmm. um, but she writes it like a really just kind of straightforward, but still very, like, beautiful manner that it's an easy read. Uh, so highly recommend it. And yeah, they, they hit the all the main points here, there are certain, um, you know, there are a lot of subplots that don't make it in 
but that's really the same of all the film adaptations. It's because it's so long and encompasses so much. It's kind of impossible unless you're doing like a mini series to get every single plot point. But uh, yeah, especially Catherine Hepburn, just you feel like she stepped right out of the book. Uh, I think of all, I love Winona Ryder as Joe. I like Saoirse Ronan, the newest one as Joe, but I feel like Catherine Hepburn comes closest to what Louisa May Alcott pictured Joe as being like. So it's, I was, I'm just so thrilled I finally got to see her as Joe. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, I also, I guess, um, when was the book written? Do you happen to know? 1880? Um, I think it was, it was started, I think, just after the Civil War. So I want to say, let, let me look it up quick. Because uh, again, I think it was maybe over a few years. Uh, originally published, that's right, I was right, 1868. Oh, okay. So that's earlier than I thought. Um, interesting. So. One impression that I got just based off of uh, Cassandra asking me in a series of questions like, well, did they have this in it? Do they have that in it? Um, the book was originally a little bit more, um, had a little bit more of a bite to it in certain parts. Would you say that assessment is correct? Uh, huh, bite. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, <laughs> You know, they do leave out uh, one of the more controversial scenes where uh, uh, dear little devil Amy uh, gets mad that uh, Joe and May go to a dance without her. So, you know, she quite reasonably takes Joe's manuscript and throws it in the fire. Mm -hmm. So and she also uh, Joe finally forgives her when Amy uh, almost drowns uh, and freezes when she's ice skating and goes through the ice. So they do leave out those two scenes. I see why it's hard to make. I love Amy, but uh, it is hard to kind of make her likable after that. But uh, that's why I really like uh, in the new movie, Florence Pugh as Amy, I think really captures the kind of just like, yeah, Amy's a little bit of a sociopath, but in a weird way, she's got a good heart. <laughs> I guess that's one of the themes that kind of came up in. Uh, yeah, Cassandra did tell me about the burning of the manuscript, for example. and um, And I guess most of the things that I'm recalling that, that, sh that Cassandra asked about that weren't in the movie were moments that were mostly Amy being kind of terrible. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, but sometimes in a funny way, like the, probably the, the, the funniest thing that, that Cassandra shared with me was apparently when, uh, when Joe cuts her hair, uh, Amy's response is, Oh, Joe, you're one beauty. Yeah, I do wish they kept it that line. That's a great one. Um, you know, Louisa May Alcott uh, basically based the book on her life. I mean, she's Joe. Uh, she had a younger sister who liked mm -hmm. paint. Um, and uh, so I think there was, you know, working out some of that, like, you know, little aggressions she had towards her sister and that. But, it's, you know, at the same time, I think... Joe and Amy are the sisters that I think get the most time in both the book and the adaptations, because I think for all that they have a lot of surface differences, they're probably the most alike in temperament. And that's why they tend to drive each other the craziest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do wish they had spent a little more time with that in this movie. I still think overall the 94 version with uh, Winona Ryder is the best of all the adaptations, but 
you know, this is, I'd have to say, a close second. Oh, cool, cool. So, uh, shall we actually get into the whole uh, narrative here? Yeah, let's do it. Which right. uh, might, might be a little bit dull for, uh, for people who have read the book and already know the story and everything, but let's see what this movie actually covered yeah, <laughs> out of all know. the different adaptations. <laughs> Most modern audiences are familiar with the general outline of Little Women's Story which follows the good-hearted March family struggles during and just after the Civil War in Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, Rather than following a traditional plot, the book and the movie are more of a series of character studies of the little women in question. And so we will tackle George Cukor's 1933 version from that same lens. The main focal point of each adaptation is author Louisa May Alcott Standin, the second eldest daughter, Joe, Played here by Catherine Hepburn in a role that seems written for her. All right. So uh, getting into Joe, Joe is an outspoken tomboy determined to become a writer. And uh, the way they just, you know, portray this tomboyishness is uh, basically that she's kind of loud and she yells things across the road and uh, Christopher Columbus yells out Christopher Columbus a lot. That's her catchphrase. Yeah. Um, Is that true in the book as well? Yes, that's true. She's, you know, Joe is described as very cultish and like being tall and not really comfortable with her, with her like long limbs. And she's just very athletic. And again, it's like Catherine Hepburn just kind of stepped out of the pages in that regard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so her um, writing ambitions leave her blind to the one sided love of her best friend and rich next door neighbor, uh, Theodore. Laurie Lawrence, which uh, I guess I guess you can shorten your second name <laughs> to, to be your nickname, uh, played by Douglas Montgomery in this adaptation. And um, I thought that uh, that their relationship was sweet. And, you know, ha- not having read the book, of course, I wasn't entirely certain how that would play out. So I, I actually was like along for a ride in keeping that dramatic tension up. And I have to say that as a person who hadn't read the book, um, I, I bought into it. It wasn't too obvious what was going to happen. I agree. I mean, so many readers and people who love this story are still upset at the way their relationship pans out. But I agree with, uh, Louisa May Alcott, that it makes sense that they are kindred spirits, but in a way that makes the most sense as like childhood friends, you know? Right, right. And in that, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice portrayal and description of uh, what we don't always get to see. And that is uh, two people of the opposite gender actually have a friendship. Yep. And um, even, I mean, even though Laurie does have feelings for, for Joe, it kind of in the end when those don't play out, he's still a friend. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Lori is another character who uh, there isn't as much focus on him here as there is in the book. Really. Um, You know, he has his whole character arc where he tries to get over Joe and kind of becomes sort of a profligate type in Europe before he meets Amy again. Uh, but I really, Douglas Montgomery really grew on me in the role. I wasn't sure about him at first, but I feel like he really kind of captures the sort of like puppy love quality of Laurie. And it's just very believable as a, as a young, good hearted kind of doofus. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, too much he's portrayed as kind of the perfect dreamboat in adaptations. And in fact, I mean, he is supposed to be handsome and charming, but he is also supposed to have a bit of the doofus about him. And I think this movie really gets that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, good hearted, but maybe not like a razor wit or something like that. Right. Not foolish, just, you know, not not the perfect match for Joe. No, no, unfortunately um, for him, but fortunately for him later on. Yeah. Getting back to Joe, Joe is just as passionate about the rest of her family as she is about her writing. Uh, this family includes the steady and loving Marmy, played by Spring Byington, and the little seen but much beloved Army chaplain father, Mr. March played by Samuel Hines, and he just kind of appears. Everyone's really excited, and then he he kind of disappears. That's basically how he is in the book in every adaptation. He's kind of an afterthought, which I frankly, you know, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not everything has to be about dad. Um, And of course, there are the other little women, her sisters, the uh, eldest being Meg, the third child being Beth and the youngest being Amy, who we've already been talking about. Yeah. Meg is cool. Beth is the sweet one. Yeah. She's very much the kind of little angel of the hearth uh, type of character who, um, you know, I think she gets kind of, uh, you know, the short end of the stick narratively, um, unfortunately, but I find her pretty fascinating too. Uh, I actually find her pretty relatable. I I just kind of want to chill out at home, too. (laughs) She is. um, It's kind of weird because I kind of assumed that she was the youngest going into the movie um, as it kind of unfolded and only kind of like halfway through the movie realized that Amy was younger than her just because like, you know, Amy's off in going to school and doing stuff while like Beth is. I guess at home playing the piano. Yeah, they explained in the book that you know Beth's crippling shyness makes it so that like she tried to go to school but just couldn't handle it, so she was just taught at home. Uh, so she's very much, I think, petted and protected like the youngest. So a lot of people kind of assume she is, which I like that they give her this kind of just crippling social anxiety because otherwise she probably would be a little too angelic, a little too perfect, and this gives her some real depth, kind of like playing off of the whole sweet and shy persona and saying, hey, that's not always a wonderful quality to have. It could actually be pretty, pretty limiting. And so I think I think they do portray that pretty well in this. Yeah, she should probably get therapy for it. But yeah, yeah. In modern day, she probably would have had a better time. But yeah, that's that's our that's our cast of sisters. Um, I I do. They are kind of a. Um, a teen girl squad going on where they have like, they're each like different uh, archetype uh, characters, but they also kind of develop and they are fully full fledged characters as well. Yeah. It's really cool of Alcott in that you do think that they are probably just going to be like, there's the pretty one, there's the tomboy, there's the shy one, there's the snotty one, but they all do have like, all are multifaceted and, and reveal that throughout. And, uh, so I do think the book is really underrated and I think the movie gets that. And uh, yeah, uh, most girls like me are just infatuated with the story because it's, 
it's just nice to have a book written by a person who, if you look into her story, really was a good person. Louisa May Alcott was a really good person who was a fan of a lot of progressive causes and did her bid during the war, nursed a lot of people. And it's just, it's just nice to read something about good people written by a good person, you know? Right, right. All right, so going on. Although not as much time is spent with the other March girls as we spent with Joe, they too have their own stories. Beautiful Meg, played by Frances D., wants to be a genteel lady and is pressured to marry rich uh, because the family is quite poor. Uh, the book explains that uh, uh, they did have money at some point, but her, their dad being a very progressive person, he uh, opened a school and uh, allowed in black pupils and eventually lost his reputation and basically lost the school and lost his money. And so they are in very dire straits. And that's why basically they suck up to, rich at march throughout ah uh, so, okay they weren't so, they weren't clear on that in the movie and it's grotesque that that they weren't yeah because they the just didn't want to bring up that whole you know that whole issue of people going to school with each other right oh, right and that's, you know that's going to cost them points yeah so Meg, being the oldest, kind of has the strongest memory of when they had money. And so she kind of, you know, wants to be the lady and, uh, you know, be shoulder to shoulder with the rich young ladies. Because she's a governess and so she sees people of a higher status and wants that. But in the end, she follows her heart and marries poor but sincere John Brooke, who is Laurie's tutor and played by John Davis Lodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, thought, the thought of Meg or any of her sisters growing up and leaving Joe terrifies her, which is something she has in common with shy and gentle Beth, played by Jane Parker. Beth is the most contented of the March sisters, happy to tend to her kittens and play piano at home. Oh, the eternal kittens. I, I guess she just has a basket of kittens with her constantly. Did they grow up in the book? <laughs> They do. Yeah, she's kind of known to be sort of the mother head. She has kittens and in the book she has a bunch of dolls she takes care of too. So to kind of drive home that, you know, Beth is the sweet one. Beth is the sweet one. She's kind of a Madeline Bassett type character if you take it too far. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a fine line to play. Uh, My favorite Beth is Claire Danes from the 90s movie because I feel like she really helps ground Beth. Beth can be you know, it's, it is very easy to take her too sickly sweet. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, you know, this movie probably borders that a little bit, but I think they do a good job of reining it in. Oh, yeah, they did. They do. Uh, she's so painfully shy that she's slow to make friends outside her sisters. But Lori's initially forbidding grandfather, played by Henry Stevenson, soon wins her over by gifting her his grand piano. Yeah, in the book, they explain that. I think it's, they say granddaughter in this movie, but I think it's actually his daughter uh, in the book uh, was a lot like Beth, sweet and played the piano and she died young. So he really sees a lot of her and Beth. And so that makes it even sadder when, you know, what happens to Beth happens and he gets his heart broken all over again. Um, so, but she he gives her his grand piano and it's a pretty sweet scene where he she goes over to thank him and hugs him and everything because that's a big step for her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sadly, her, her story is cut short when her health is weakened by scarlet fever and her death is a turning point for Joe and her family. 
Yeah, that was um, that was a kind of touch and go moment. You think she's going to get better and then she doesn't. Uh, yeah, she gets better for a number of years, but Scarlet Fever does weaken the heart. So later on, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. she don't make it. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Uh, M- Mr. Lawrence, he... One thing that I wish they had a little bit more of was like his portrayal as being someone intimidating and mean because they say that at the beginning and then you see really no exhibit of him being intimidating or mean. No. For the rest of the movie. (laughs) They just kind of mention it. It's like, oh man, that horrible old man, old man (laughs) Lawrence. And then he's just kind of like slightly stern and then is nice. But, you know. They only had so much time. I imagine in the book that he might have a little space for a few more scenes where he gets to be intimidating and scary. I think so. I do think it's the thing where, yeah, this is a very pleasant story. So I don't think they dwell on it too much him being intimidating, but he is very strict with Laurie in the beginning and everything. And I think Stevenson does a very good job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he looks physically like he'd be kind of intimidating, very, very austere looking. But yeah, they kind of drop that act pretty quick. I mean, and that could be it. I mean, we know that when we were kids, there were, you know, teachers and things like that, that we basically assumed were going to be intimidating and scary. And that was purely based on how, how they looked. Yeah. Yeah. So there is the story of the, uh, of the other two sisters, but let's get to the youngest sister, Amy, played by Joan Bennett. And uh, she is in many ways, the polar opposite of Joe. Although she is just as headstrong as her second eldest sister, Amy is almost comically prim and ladylike and constantly chastises Joe for her boyish manners and slang. But like Joe, Amy has artistic ambitions and wants to be a painter. Also in the book, she incinerates, you know, Joe's manuscript. So there's some friction there. You know, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do when she's upset. Yeah, she is. She is the. Um, the girly girl. <laughs> she is. She's she is Joe's foil. So she wants to become a painter. And so later in the movie, she is invited to go to Europe with her rich aunt March, played by Edna May Oliver. Who's who, great. Who's who's a great character. We haven't really gotten into her. Her first introduction is at the uh, at the start of the movie where Joe is taking care of her by reading to her from something rather dull. Mm-hmm. And uh and Aunt March uh, falls asleep and then chastises uh, Joe for trying to sneak off after she's fallen asleep. And she has her own little evolution as well, where you get the sense that she is not a nice person at all, but they don't necessarily play her as just comically evil. She is not a nice person, but at the same time, she does like, you know, take Amy over to Europe. She, she's selfish, but she does show up to uh, Meg's wedding after saying like, if you marry that poor guy, Oh, he's just after your money and blah, 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 blah. And you see her at the wedding later, just kind of like griping about it, but she's still there. So I I kind of, I kind of liked her as as a character as just being this grump that, you know, probably 
probably can be brought around to the right side eventually. Right. Aunt March is pretty great because she's always great in any adaptation. Uh, you know, the backstory being that, you know, she's pretty disgusted with, uh, I'm not sure if the father's supposed to be her uh, brother or her nephew. I can't remember, but you know, like, you know, he had to go and stick to his principles, lose all his money, the idiot. So she's, she's very much kind of old school, wants to hold on to the family name and money. But once again, those sweet March girls get under her skin. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Aunt March, and I don't know if they really covered, did they cover this in the movie? Her secret design is to help Amy find a rich husband while she studies art in Paris. Yeah, that's kind of more uh, spelled out, I think, in the book uh, than it is here. Um, and I think it's also Amy is very much of that mind, mind frame, too. Again, I think it, it's kind of too bad we don't get to see Amy in Europe, since that's a big part of the book, where she's courted by, you know, this very rich man and, you know, wants to marry him and all of that until she meets Lori again and realizes, oh, maybe I won't be happy with just a rich marriage. Uh, the the new movie with uh, Florence Pugh as Amy goes into that in more detail. Uh, but uh, yeah, Amy wants to be the traditional girl who goes to Europe and finds a rich husband. But uh, yeah, no. does actually, but not in the way she thinks. Yeah, what's great is um, also the excuse that Aunt March has, at least in this adaptation, is that she just wants to visit various like spas yep. for her health. Which is like such a fantastic 19th century sort of like rich person thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And and to drag along your your poor younger relatives to do. So <laughs> I kind of like the interpretation in the movie that I got out of it rather than her going off to find Amy a rich husband is just like, well, I need a companion to go to Europe with me. So I'm just going to drag around my poor niece yep. to do these health That's spots. So the character is slightly different, but uh, I, I, I can dig it. It's, it's good. When they come to visit uh, Joe, who had um, moved to New York, right? At that point? Um, I think this is what like, inspires her to go to New York, because she always assumed she would be the one to go to Europe. Ah, okay. Uh -huh. Because Aunt March and Amy show up at her um, boarding house in in some city that she's staying in. And uh, that's when that's when she learns like, hey, she's not here to come pick you up. She's here just to let you know that she's leaving and she's taking Amy. And the implication that Aunt March always had was that Joe would be the one to go to Europe, which, of course, she wants to do for her writing and and kind of like just to have the world experience. But uh you know, Joe put in the time taking care of Aunt March during the war, but it's uh, it's young Amy who gets to go. So because, you know, uh, and again, this is spelled out more in the book. Uh, Amy has to go stay with Aunt March when uh, Beth becomes sick because Amy is the only child who hasn't had scarlet fever before. So they don't want her to get infected. So she spends a lot of time with Aunt March and uh, Aunt March right. decides that she clicks more with Amy because Amy is eager to be a, a, a classically rich young lady, unlike Joe, who does not give a crap. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to comfort herself and to test her limits, Joe goes to New York and takes a room at a boarding house, paying her way by looking after the landlady's children, which also gives her ample time to write. There she meets her soulmate, the German professor Friedrich Baer, played by Paul Lucas. He encourages her to write from the heart. 
and you know this is sparked by the fact that he's honest to her because she's to make money she writes a lot of like really kind of uh, you know, violent thrillers uh, for the paper that just aren't really what she wants to do, but she has to to make money. He senses that. Yeah. Um, although I guess the movie might have something slightly different to it, where I think the impression that I got was that she was writing these sensationalist kind of adventure pulp sort of stories just because that's kind of like what she likes to read. So she was kind of creating that on her own. And it's um, the professor, Bear, who kind of says like, hey, you know, you don't the, the kind of the, the classic advice to a young writer is to, you know, you, you do have to write what you know. And so you don't necessarily have to write the things that you like to read uh, yeah. when you're when you're young. You write, uh, as he says, from the heart. And this is. Also want to kind of go into it a little bit uh, with the possibly somewhat creepy relationship between Professor Bear and uh, Joe. Creepy. You do get a sense that there's a significant age difference. There is a little bit of an age difference, yeah. And experience difference, I guess. The professor seems like he's seen a lot of life. It really, you have to hit like the right note with that. And I think this movie does pull it off. But my understanding is that some of the later movies, they do um, they do really hit like hot older guy uh, notes really well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't like uh, the fact that, you know, they want Joe to, ma- to marry Lori. And so they don't like that she marries this older professor who in the book is not supposed to be your typical hottie. But he's a good man and he understands her and encourages her. To write because I think a lot of Joe is that she doesn't want to let go of the kind of adventures she wrote as a kid. She doesn't quite feel comfortable yet to really write about real things. And it takes someone like Bear, who has had the life experience, to tell her, hey, there's good stuff in what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a big fan of their relationship, though I can understand reservations given their age difference. But uh, I, yeah, I think Paul Lucas does a really good job of portraying him as not a creep. So that that's always a good thing. Yeah, I think what makes it work is his honesty with her when reviewing her reviewing her book. And he, you know, he feels bad when she looks upset about it at first. But I think that like really speaks well that, okay, so there is this age difference and there is this experience difference, but he's not treating her like a lesser. She like he he is challenging her to a certain extent and not in a rude way, but in a like, hey, you write this really well, but there's also this aspect that you need to change. And exactly. and kind of approaching her as an equal, which really kind of helps smooth over that initial reservation of him being uh, an older person. Exactly. So I think the movie does that pretty, pretty right. And Beth's death, I think, also helps Joe realize that it's time for her to kind of grow up and start writing more about grown up things. Right. And when Amy, Amy arrives home from Europe after hearing the news about Beth, she brings with her, her new husband, Laurie. And I do think, you know, my one complaint is the movie totally skips over their romance. Really. Uh, it's just yeah, like, it's married now. <laughs> and Joe was at first startled by this news, but knowing that her best friend and sister share, you know, deep down under the kind of shallowness, the same generous spirit and exquisite taste. 
She quickly realizes the union makes sense and is happy for them. Although Joe misses Beth painfully, she at last gives Bear her hand in marriage. Looking forward to a partnership of equals, one that will allow her to continue to write about her journey with her sisters. Aww. Aww. It ends ends very nicely with everyone in the house and getting together. (laughs) In a weird way, it was kind of a, um, a state fair ending. In that, uh, <laughs> I know you. I can. I can hear you being puzzled, even though I can't see you. Um, <laughs> remember at the end of State Fair, where she says, "Like you know, oh, I, I guess I'll marry this like this guy that all the family expects me to marry," which you know Joe isn't about to do. But it's kind of like she has this scene with um, with Laurie, where they kind of like said, "Like all right, we're cool." We're friends and we're never going to, you know, stop being friends. And uh, so there's this kind of bittersweet moment there. And then suddenly out of the rain appears uh, Professor Bear. um, And she doesn't quite go like literally running down the road to meet him. But there is kind of like that same sense of like, oh, we had like this down note. And now we're going to go back to um, to the it wasn't like a big reveal or anything like that, but it was just kind of like this realization of that relationship because it wasn't at all, you know, guaranteed that that relationship would work out either. She had left New York with him behind mm-hmm. um, in the movie, at least. So I think, I think the movie played that out pretty well. I agree. I mean, Louisa May Alcott's original plan for the book was for Joe to end up with no one because Louisa May Alcott herself never married. But the publishers were like, no, 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 no. She, the heroine needs to end up with somebody. And so she's like, well, fine, but she's not going to end up with the handsome neighbor next door. I'm going to write somebody who you won't expect and uh, but who I think is right for Joe. And so good for her for, you know, she couldn't quite stick to her guns because they wouldn't let her, but she uh, didn't really compromise the integrity of the character, which I admire. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Okay, so that's the that's the plot of the movie with our little commentary. How shall we rate this movie? Let's find out. Okay. Okay, so our first category that we're going to rate this on from one to ten is acting. I'm going to get a high score. <laughs> I Yeah. I mean, I think everyone is pretty perfectly cast. Um, I, I mean, especially if you read the book. <laughs> I mean, Joe Bennett is, you know, physically a little too old to play uh, Amy at the beginning, but she's still hilarious as Amy and is great. So I think I might go over the top and give them a 10. Give them a 10? All right. Yeah. I'm going to give them a nine just, just because. Um, or should I give them a 10? No one was bad. Yeah, that's. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and match you. I'm going to give it a ten. I was originally going to give it a nine. Yeah, crank up that dial. Okay, so excellent acting. Yeah, no one was poorly suited to their role, um, and even like the little side characters and everything like that. They they fit well, and of course, Hepburn as as Joe was pretty pretty perfect. Up next is the writing. Interesting because it is adapted from, you know, a well-known book. I think they did a pretty decent job of adapting it. And, you know, they had to cut it somewhat because it already is a long movie, even with the cuts. 
but uh, yeah. you you've read the book, so how do you feel that they did adapting it? I think well, I mean, I think it would have been nice to include the more dramatic moments, like the burning of the manuscript and the uh, ice skating scene, which is very action oriented, um, and also you know include kind of more into Amy's story in Europe. So I'll take two points off for that and give it an eight because otherwise it's very good. All right. Giving it an eight. Eight was also what I was going to give it simply. I mean, it's uh, it's good, but hearing about the parts that they cut and just some of like the one liners, like saying, Joe, your only beauty as she has her haircut is like, how can you guys not include that? That is so wonderfully mean. Yeah. <laughs> We'll get into into this with boldness, but I do feel like maybe some of this might have been a little bit softened nerfed yes, a little bit uh, just because of how fragile everyone was feeling uh, during the Great Depression, maybe. maybe. Um, uh, yeah, that's a good point. It is. I mean, despite being written in the 1860s, it is a very Depression-y movie um, yeah, and story. Yeah. Just the sense of like, we used to be wealthy. We had this family. We had all these good times uh, a while ago, but now we're on hard times and we have to like, it kind of celebrates the nobility of having to soldier forward with all uh, of Beautiful way of putting it. And also, you know, World War One wasn't too far behind in the memories either at this point. So right. I think exactly. A little too. I think, I think there's a reason why this movie really fit in. Um, with the time it was made. Uh, exactly. Really resonated with folks. All right. And our third category is cinematography. I thought it was okay. Yeah. Got some really uh, pretty shots throughout. Um, you know, I, the, but that might have more to do with just the, the sets, which we'll get into later. were very good. So, you know, I'll, I'll give it like a, a six just because, you know, it doesn't, overwhelm me but you know it's still serviceable yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna give him a seven just for i mean i didn't notice the cinematography so much but it was that's not always a bad thing sometimes you (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you just uh you just need it to flow and and they did that i agree okay and lastly we have overall, how well does the acting, writing, and cinematography come together to produce this overall movie? I am going to go with nine. Nine? Yeah. I think it just, I mean, this was such a huge hit when it came out, and you can really see why. And like you pointed out, I think it's because of the time it came out. It really, I think, perfectly kind of captured what audiences really wanted. It didn't really skirt away from the difficulties. Uh, that people go through, but didn't get bogged down in the depressing aspects. It showed like, well, if you really stick together, if you uh, stay as positive as you can, uh, you can still find happiness, creativity in these circumstances. Okay, so going into the bonus rounds, it has 66 points, which... Wait, wait, what did you give it? Oh, excuse me. Yes, excuse me. Uh, an eight. I'm going to give it an eight. I only docked it two points, um, which for issues that I think really linked to um, how bold it was in that it it really just kind of kept things very tame and soothing. It was very much a comfort food movie. Yep. 
and and that's okay and that's fine i just um i just wished it challenged me and the audience just a little bit more that's a very good point yeah i do think that uh they really should have kind of emphasized more that not everything is always lovey and dovey with these with these sisters so they focus primarily on just joe herself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah they have a, a couple of spats here and there but really it's everyone gets along so well um and not that there isn't conflict but like the biggest the biggest worry and conflict seems to be Beth's illness, which is not, I, I am not a fan of like illness being the crux of, of the worry or tension in a movie. Especially because, you know, it does kind of take away from Beth. I make it more about how the various sisters react to Beth, which is right. kind of a complaint about Beth's character is that she's there to make people feel things rather than have her own. Mm-hmm story going forward and again i think her character is handled a little better in the book where you actually get to hear her say like you know speak up for herself at times and really explore herself as a character where we don't get that too much here no we we don't but you know still solid movie solid moving giving it a solid eight um which gives it a total of 66 points going into the bonus rounds which interestingly enough, makes it exactly even with Henry VIII, uh, private life of Henry VIII, which we did um, last, last time. Which is so incredibly different from this yes. movie. Totally yes. Everything. Very different. Yeah. Uh, so, going on a chance for bonus points, I'm sure it'll pick up quite a few here. Um, costumes and set, I'm going to give it a solid five. Me too. They, the dresses were perfect, and I think it was a big deal at the time that they got dresses that authentic. I uh, read a story once where uh, George Cukor was like, okay, girls, you cannot get these dresses dirty. And so one of the first things uh, Catherine Hepburn did was like spill some ice cream on her skirt, which I'm just like, you know what? I love you, Kate. I would have done the exact same thing. Um, and of course, the sets were beautiful. Um, I think, you know, the ones that really stick out are uh, after Meg's wedding, when uh, Lori uh, tries to propose to Joe. And it's a wonderful kind of pastoral spring-like scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, just very love, lovely, wonderfully done. So yeah, five for me. Yeah, and spilling ice cream on the dress is very Joe. So yeah, it's a very Joe thing to do. I mean, there's no question why Hepburn was cast. She really <laughs> like Joe in every way. And our next category, which is something I have to talk about, boldness. I I'm giving it uh maybe one point in that they do get she does keep her independence and she chooses who to marry on her terms, which I think was cool and not necessarily a given. And the fact that she does get to go to New York on her own and, you know, it's with people that the family trusts and everything like that, but she is able to kind of start her own romance with the professor as well without like family interference. Right. And the fact that she doesn't, the heroine doesn't end up with the hot young neighbor that it seems like she's set up to end up with is bold. But, you know, all of this really kind of comes down more to Alcott's choices, which were a lot bolder, you know, in post-Civil War times than they were really in the 1930s. I'll agree with your one and just give the point mostly for Alcott instead of the movie. Right. It's 
I mean, and also I understand like not every movie has to be like, you know, the most challenging thing in the world to, right. to be good. It's just we're determining whether it gets bonus points, you know, extra points on on being bold. And this is very much a. Hey, it's OK. The depression is really rotten, but, you know, we're still good people. There's still good things in the world. We're going to get through this. It's I mean, I kind of just kind of I don't know what it was, but when I went into the movie, I just kind of like flipped a switch and said like, oh, this is exactly for the depression audience. This is. Yes. This is who as a person in the depression you want to be and you want to see happen. You want you want this to play out. And there is heartache with Beth's illness and everything like that. And so there are rotten things that do happen. But in the end, people do end up happy and they find their own way. They find their own way. And I think that's, you know what, the, the 1930s, they earned that telling of the story. So, you know, you know, I think it, to the detriment of like Amy's portrayal, because, you know, Amy's a lot more problematic in the book and all of that. So, yeah, not the boldest movie portrayal, but, you know, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so how many points are you giving it? One? Uh, I it one. Okay. Uh, so our next category for bonus points is legacy. I think it's going to do a whole lot better here because A, they adapted this for a movie uh, a, a couple more times. Oh, several more times. And it had been uh, adapted, I think, a couple times in the silent era. But this is the first one, I think, that really took off. And I think was the reason why we get so many adaptations. And I think Catherine Hepburn had had a few successes before this, but I think this just further cemented her, her rise to stardom. It really is just a signature role for her. So I'll give it the full five for Legacy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that as well. I mean, it brought out Hepburn. It also is kind of like just an excellent portrayal of that movie that really fits the times that it was created in. And yeah, you really make a good point with that. It was, I can see it being incredibly popular because it is such a good bomb. Like I felt comforted by it and I'm not in the depression. So exactly. It is just very comforting. Sometimes it's just nice to hang out with a family that loves each other. <laughs> And I also think that it's important legacy for George Cukor, too, who became one of the bigger, biggest directors of classic Hollywood. And I think this was one of the first examples. He was known as like a woman's director, that he was really hmm. good with working with actresses and really like not just passing them over for the action, but really working with them and helping them find their character. He was the original director for Gone with the Wind, actually, but the David Selznick decided he was taking too long actually doing his thing and working with the actresses. And so he was fired. Apparently Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland were so distraught and they were they were, uh, you know, dressed as wartime widows when they found out. And so the, these two women dressed in like widow's weeds were like wailing and running to like the producer's office to demand they rehire him and all of that. Oh, so, wow. uh, I think this, and I think this is the first example of him really. Yeah. Uh, sensitively portraying women characters without condescending to them or patronizing them. Yeah. That's, that's really good. And you can you can see that coming through. I didn't know that about about the director, but it it makes perfect sense. So double fives on legacy longevity. How well does this movie stand up over time? I am going to give it a four. 
I think it does stand up. It might be maybe a little bit uh, dull and tame for for modern audiences, but I think it 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 lasts and there's there's no cringeworthy moments, really. Yes, I, I would agree with your four. And I think it's, you know, there have been really good versions of this made after, you know, the 90s version is my favorite. And, you know, I thought the one that came out a few years ago was a little overrated, but still very good. But the, so the fact that this that was made in the early 30s, yeah, it, I mean, a lot of people might think it's a bit hokey in parts compared to later adaptations, but it still holds up so well. And if, even though the, though it is long, it, it, it never really tires you or you lose your your focus with it. So I think it holds up very well. So, yeah, four for me, too. All right. And our last chance for bonus points on technical I can't think of any real technical effects that we had, but it wasn't really that mu- that kind of movie. <laughs> no. I mean, I do think I do wish they had included the scene with Amy because uh, I feel like that would have been uh, a chance to show some good technical skill. So because of that, I think I will I will give it a one just, you know, one out of good faith. And because they just there were a few missed opportunities for some good technical effects. I do love how they do uh, the play that Joe wrote at the beginning. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty hilarious. And the sets and the sets collapsing and everything was pretty great, but that, that was more, you know, covered in, in sets why we gave sets of five. Uh, so again, not a whole lot going on technically, which is fine. Yeah. I'm going to match your one, uh, actually mostly for the, the, uh, or having a controlled destruction of a cheesy home play set uh, that couldn't have been easy to just do in the weirdly organized way that it happened. Um, (laughs) It's a great real moment. (laughs) Yeah. So that gives us a total score of 98. Oh, very nice. So uh, sadly enough, that puts it two points behind Henry VIII. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, pretty close, pretty close. Um, Let's see, pretty close to Bad Girl, the champ, but still ahead of those two. Shanghai Express, one point off from that. Although I would not say that Shanghai Express is one point ahead of this. I think the, uh, the Shanghai Express was not as good of a movie. Shanghai Express was stylized. This was had more heart. And it really just comes down to personal taste, I think. Yeah, that might be it. Uh, so the last question that we have, however, is um, are we going to nominate Little Women for a Notsker Award, the movie podcast movie award for movies? You know what? I think I'm going to go with a big fat yes. I am as well. This is a great movie. It it just feels nice, <laughs> which, you know, is not always like the greatest mark of a movie. But it feel good, you know? Yeah. We're, we're in an era where we are going to see a lot of that. And yeah. I think this is a good example of it just being effective without being schmaltzy or too too over the top in coddling you. Yeah. And I think it really speaks well to whoever makes the adaptation because it can it handled in the wrong hands be schmaltzy 
you really have to have a good touch. I think Cukor, a lot of credit goes to him in keeping that good balance. And of course, you know, Louisa May Alcott's Bones, you know, sweet and sincere without being schlocky is a very, it's a very difficult tightrope to walk. And the story and Cukor and Tepperd and, and all really accomplish it very well. Okay, so that is our second Notsker nomination in a row, along with The Private Life of Henry VIII. So the year is picking up. Now, that's uh, pretty much the conclusion of our episode here. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at ComebackAStar. And if you want to email us, you can email us at ComebackAStarPodcast at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook page. If you want to just type into the search ComebackAStar, we'll probably come up. And um, let's see. Do we have anything else coming up? Uh, more episodes. <laughs> more episodes, for sure. This is the start of the longer year seasons. Um, and I think it's our last, uh, our last one that spans two years, thank goodness, because I'm always going to get confused with the... Me too. I'm looking forward to just making it one year because I'm constantly... <laughs> what years we're in <laughs> yeah this is also the era where we're entering into like having i think it's 10 nominees per year which is in my opinion entirely too many but yeah i mean come on be a little brutal uh academy folks come on uh, <laughs> but um yeah, I you can understand though if this is a kind of quality of movie going on at this time, why it would be difficult to kind of prune it down. Yeah, well, we are going to prune it down because there are some that we have not given the the Notsker to already. Yeah, that's true. We're 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 brutal ones. I can understand why early thirties they weren't so much. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think uh, some of these in the in this year have been nominated simply because they were box office successes or they had. Yeah some pretty strong lobbying from the, uh, from the studios. But uh, we also have some really, really solid movies already in private life of Henry the eighth and here in little women. Yeah. So I, uh, I want to apologize also for the kind of like spottiness in our release schedule. We've had some illnesses and um, moving and all sorts of stuff going on, but Yes, we have recovered from Scarlet Fever. Um, I am, let's see, one week away from being fully vaccinated now. So hopefully we can get back to maybe even seeing these movies in person again sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I am disappointed we didn't get to watch this one together. But yeah, hopefully for some of the titles coming up, we'll be able to uh, actually watch and scream about them together in Poison. Yeah, and maybe you can come uh, come back to the the basement studio, and we'll record sometimes. Yes, um, the dogs. I miss them and you guys, but mostly the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, they're ready to get out. We've been here for about an hour, so I am going to turn off this projector and draw the curtains here, and bid you all goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs>